Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified therapist. Over the last few months, we've been exploring different types of therapists and mental health professions, just anything that has to do with psychology and a career in psychology. So today I have a special guest and her name is Catalina G and she has her own practice. Um, It's called In the Name of Silence. And what's cool about this practice is that she practices something called contemplative therapy or contemplative therapy. I guess it depends on where you're from, how you pronounce it. But anyway, I speak to her today about her approach to therapy and the types of people she helps with her approach. All right. So, Catalina, you are a contemplative therapist. I say it with my Texas accent, but you say it contemplative, but I think they mean the same thing. And you'll explain to us what that means right now. Um, Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your title and your practice? Sure. Um, Thank you, Crystal, for having me. Um, I know this is not a very common type of therapy. Um, I got here just by, I don't know, I would say walking the path of self-discovery. I first studied uh, to become a life coach. And after that, I went through the CBT line of work. And uh, from there, I decided that I really wanted to dive into a practice which, which would allow my clients to take some ownership of the discoveries that we were making during our sessions. And um, that led me to Buddhist psychology, which is very much based on uh, contemplation as, as we, how we contemplate ourselves doing things and observing our thoughts and observing our practices and observing our behavior. And um, that led me to contemplative therapy, which is a combination between um, clinical psychology and uh, Eastern Buddhist philosophy of, of how we see life and, and how that affects the way we, we behave. And um, that, is, that is what I do. That, that is the, a long answer for, for my practice. It's so interesting because I think it's really rare to hear about Buddhist psychology. Could you kind of explain a little bit more about what that means? You described how it's contemplative. So it's really observing your thoughts, observing your feelings, observing your reactions. And it sounds like you had gone through maybe a personal journey to get there. How would you feel about talking to us about that? For sure, my practice reflects a lot of my own self-discovery process. And um, I, I was introduced to meditation when I was very young, like 20 years ago, uh, by my own uh, therapist, my psychotherapist, which um, she was a very also herself, she was a very particular kind of, of therapist because she was very into uh, trying to, for us or me as a client to know what I was feeling before getting to the practice, to her session. So she would go and tell me, like, you must take at least one hour to gather your thoughts and gather your emotions before coming here, and then we try to put those together. 
and I, I was just 17 years old. So back then, that was such a big deal for me, just having to take one hour to sit with myself and trying to understand what I was feeling before going to her session. It was like, oh my goodness, that was such a big work for me. And um, I did that for many, many years while going to her, to her as my psychotherapist. And that just stuck with me. So um, I've been meditating for so long and um, just trying to become a, a very authentic therapist myself. Um, in a point, I decided that meditation had to be a part of it because that was the only way I could be also authentic to my clients and what I believed um, was my way of helping them. So um, then uh, while I was trying to, to put meditation into my practice as a, as a therapist, um, I discovered Buddhist psychology as a practice itself. Um, it was, it, it's actually a very new kind of a therapy. It was, I'm not going to say created, but put together in around the 1970s, I think. The most beautiful part of it to me is that um, it looks for a way of making the client believe and remember that we all um, own a sense of brilliant sanity, which means that uh, there is in all of us a way of self-healing and understanding the way our mind thinks and how we behave all, all comes from our subconscious mind. And the way we, he we heal is actually understanding our own path to sanity. So um, that is what Buddhist psychology actually looks for. I kind of wanted to get a sense of when you started this, and it sounds like at 17, if you think about developmentally, right, a 17-year-old having to sit with her own thoughts for an hour, that's, that is a lot of work. I agree with you. I don't know if that's something that like a conventional therapist would assign to a 17 year old um mm -hmm. but it sounds like that was very effective and you continued therapy and that it led you to to some healing i suppose mm -hmm. yeah and then the the contemplative therapy concept came together in the late 70s you said Yes, yes. Okay. It was put together by, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, Trunga Rinpoche, which is actually, um, he was the teacher of Pema Chodron. I don't know if you know her. No, She's I a, don't. Wow, this yeah. is so interesting. <laughs> She's the, she was actually the first um, Buddhist nun. And she's American, and uh, she's brilliant. And this was her teacher. So he put this together, and um, all this concept is marrying um, the, the clinical psychology, which he never uh, disregarded, with, with all this knowledge of Buddhism, which is really into understanding the way your mind works and then that leads you to enlightenment so if we take away all the terms of, of buddhism as a, as a religion we just stay with the, the psychology behind it like understanding your inner world and how your thoughts come together and why the, your thoughts are there and how those thoughts are 
linked to your beliefs and those beliefs come from when you were a child and it's a very beautiful way of putting together our pieces as as, a, as an individual with a story. It, it sounds like it has its own way. This contemplative therapy has its own way of conceptualizing clients, right? And mm-hmm. I say conceptualizing as a I guess a conventional therapist, but what I what that means for me is you try to figure out the client and the person, where they came from, where their habits come from, where they learned it from, uh, where certain environmental factors coming into play, things like that. So uh, it kind of takes the same approach in that way, but uh, just the root of some of the issues. That's something that I want to know about a little bit more from you is... Um, how do you view, I guess, like diagnosis or like certain problems, like problem behaviors or symptoms? How do you, in contemplative therapy, think of those things? That's something that we take care of that, uh, of how we diagnose someone with a lot of care. Uh, basically, because um, there is a sense in which we as therapists are only able to see 10% of the of the subconscious mind that the person is actually letting out in their behavior and the way they talk to you and the way they express themselves and the way they see life so from there if if we if we think of the of the mind as uh, 10% is your your conscious mind and then 90% the rest is in subconscious mind so as a therapist uh, we think in Buddhist psychology that we are only able to see the 10% of the conscious mind and just another 10% of subconscious mind so when we diagnose someone we believe that we're only seeing 20% of that person so this practice tends to look for a way in which this individual is ready to see it's himself or herself as an as a complete brilliant as as I told you the brilliant sanity someone that is ready to heal and then that person is comes to its own subconscious mind and discover things and that is what that person brings you to your session so you work with the images, the, the visual visualizations that the person has, and from there you're ready to start working with them in what they're seeing and discovering. Not we do not assume things, and we do not um, put that person into a label of um, some sort of diagnosis that we do not do and this is the part of this therapy that I was actually into very fondly because I thought this is brilliant this is really respectful of the way that we actually never get to know that other individual completely so um, I don't know some some of the ways that let's say if you want to someone comes to me and talks about anxiety which, which is like the most common symptom that I work with um, I usually put that person into we work for an hour into your symptoms how's your life regularly how do you feel what what triggers it and from there that I come back to my own practice I, I write a meditation for that person and I give that meditation to them so they go and 
work on that on them by themselves for 10 15 days and then when they return all of that information that they gather that is when our real work begins mm, i see so as far as diagnosis i can already i can already even feel like how different um mm-hmm. th- how like harsh that word is in the context of this type of therapy like i know that it doesn't fit and that it's almost like it's wrong um because that's just not how you would think of or conceptualize a client because that's true when we talk to clients in conventional therapy we only get so much from a client whatever they want to bring to us depending on even if they want to be there if they're forced to be there if they're a teenager or if they're you know in couples counseling it just all these things make a difference on what they disclose and then for us to kind of be like well we have to label this problem because for some reason Western science and medicine has this obsession with categorization. Um, We then have to kind of make it fit into a label, um, which is kind of, it's kind of sad if you think about it, right? Because it's like, um, for example, where I work, I work at a nonprofit um, mental health clinic, community mental health clinic. When you're funded by insurances and the government or certain things like that, they are looking for certain words, uh, especially, and they're especially pathologizing, right? Like this person has depression and it's severe and it's chronic, right? So these are all like really like heavy words. And so I can imagine how that, those words just don't match your approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> I so, hope I'm kind of capturing... I'm capturing what you're doing. I hope so. Okay. You are. You are perfectly. And um, I do know that um, I have some responsibility in which when I see um, sociopathy or something that I really know I cannot work with, I completely surrender and I tell this client that he needs to go to either just a clinical psychology Um, session or something a little bit like above that let's say um, psychiatry or something like that so I do know that this kind of practice has a responsibility and also a limitation to where I can actually help that person heal himself or herself Um, and you say it brilliantly because it's really hard Uh, we as individuals are usually putting filters in between what we say and what we feel there are many fil- filters in between. So actually getting to know what I'm really trying to say or where that is coming from is very far away from what actually comes out of my mouth. So um, this type of therapy actually tries for the individual to regain that power and like taking some control of their inner world before actually being granting that other person that role of uh, hunt, like um, what do you call that like coming in and just trying to to hunt for mining for, for things you know so mm-hmm. um, actually I wait for that person to come and present to me what they found and from there from that point of sincerity then we work with something um, 
it is hard but before when I worked out as a life coach and and then as a, a CBT uh, it was very hard because sometimes I felt they were not actually being completely sincere and truthful in our in our session because there was a barrier in which that person thought that I was trying to break and see a little more and asking for them to say more and that always felt uh, to me like I was breaking some some fence that I, I had not really permission to do right it's almost uh, it's almost like it's invasive like you're coming in and you're invading like without permission and with your approach it's completely client based completely internal and they have to be ready or they have to show that they're ready they're, ready and they're willing mhm i mean we have some freedom to work with clients how we need to but we do still have to report to like insurances things like that mm-hmm. so then of course Everything that we do, not everything, but a lot of the things that we do are influenced by those kinds of outside sources, which isn't necessarily fair to the client. Um, but um, I wonder, are you now in a private practice setting? Yes, I am in a private practice setting. And I work with people here in the U.S., uh, with people in Spain, in um I have some clients in Costa Rica as well. So, you know, that our uh, internet actually allows us to to be present for people that are not as close as our usual practice would have in the past. But um, it, it gives me a lot of flexibility with, with the client base that I have. Do you feel like being in private practice also helps you practice the way you want to practice? Correct, yes. There's such a flexibility in the way you decide your... Like, you craft, I think, a a practice um, should be crafted as something very unique to the therapist. And I feel that this is my own way of expressing the way I know how to help other people. So uh, this is just, to me, my own self-expression of my purpose. So um, I would I would not be able to do it otherwise. That's so awesome. I think it's good for listeners to hear that because if they're thinking about becoming a therapist or the listeners are uh, barely being exposed to therapy and what that's like, mm-hmm. um, it, I think it gives them an idea of what kinds of therapists are out there. But then also, if you're going to be in private practice what that can actually mean for you, um, creating kind of like a really fulfilling and unique career for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really awesome. Can you tell us uh, what kinds of clients you have? You said that you have some that are international. You said that you treat some people or most commonly diagnosed with uh, anxiety or, you know, have symptoms of anxiety. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little more about your clients? Yes. You see, Crystal, most of my clients are women. Um, that is something that I, I still try to understand why we are the ones that are most, um, I don't know, we're looking for more. And um, we're, we as women try to 
maybe understand ourselves in a different way than men. I, I don't know what is there, but there is something because um, not only my clients, but my followers and Instagram and the people that come to my meditation practices, they're mostly, I would say, 90% women. So yes, women, um, I work a lot with anxiety. And to me, and I'm gonna take the word of one of my clients, I, I asked her, can you describe what anxiety is to you? And she said, it's just a monster. So it is a monster that somehow is hunting a generation, complete generation of women. Uh, mostly, I would say that um, those are in search of meaning tend to see it more clearly when anxiety comes in. Other people that are just immersed in their daily routine do live with anxiety and they just find other resources as medication to deal with it and try to override it that way. But um, most of the clients that come to me are like, I'm done with anxiety. I'm here because I am not taking any more prescriptions. I need some way to break up with this relationship I have with with this emotion in me. So um, yes, uh, this is, I, I would say that's the strongest part of my practice is dealing with anxiety. Yeah, that's so interesting. I agree with you. I feel like there's probably stats on it, right? Like how Mm -hmm. the population that's most affected by anxiety or experiences anxiety is like women between the ages of like 20 and 45 or something like that, right? It has Mm -hmm. to be. Um, And of course, that's probably like a systemic issue and all of that. But what it sounds like to me, I'm just assuming at this point, I don't know exactly what you do. (laughs) So correct me if I'm wrong, of course. But I feel like what they want to do is there are these systems and uh, environmental kind of factors that play into women's lives, especially the ones that have anxiety that come to you. Um, But they want to kind of function apart from that. They no longer want to function in whatever, you know, paradigm or whatever it was they were functioning in before. So there still might be these environmental things, these societal things, these pressures, but it sounds like they're trying to like release themselves from that. If that makes sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just today working with someone and um, this came to our practice. It's, she said, I feel anxiety is here to steal life away from me. And um, Oh, wow. That's really profound. It is so profound. Yeah. I, it stuck with me because I said, oh, my goodness. Um, if, if you allow it. Uh, anxiety has a way of start eating like your peace of mind and the things you do and someday just wake up and you cannot just move because anxiety is there and you're afraid of walking outside uh, outside your door so um, yes my my practice is basically I, I tend to work with the idea that we have primary emotions which are the ones that we can fully express uh, let's say um, love and anger and frustration, those emotions that we have not blocked. And when we were kids, those emotions were allowed in our household. And um, those were part of our belief system. And those were part of the things that we saw our parents or in our social um, 
structure, we saw those emotions coming, flowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, uh, to me, then there are a second part of our emotions, which are the emotions that are hiding behind anxiety. So, anxiety comes in whenever there are emotions that you are not allowed to express. And uh, those are, there could be fear. It all depends on, again, your structure as an individual. But uh, I come, I, I work with people to try to let those emotions come through the filter of anxiety. And most of the times, it's just fear, uh, fear of the future, fear of not, uh, of your own survival. There is also fear of, not being able to control what's going on outside and those come from a broken self-worth system in which the person doesn't know that he or she is capable of being safe within herself or himself mm-hmm. and um, to me those are secondary emotions which are the ones that we are never talking about we talk about love and frustration and being angry with my husband or whatever, but you don't talk about, I don't feel safe here. I don't feel safe within my skin. I don't, I don't feel that I'm worthy of this or that. So anxiety is there just to to put it like a blurry vision, you know, like you distract mm-hmm. your attention from what is actually happening to you and you put all, all your energy in trying to fight anxiety. Yeah, it truly, what it sounds like is that anxiety truly is a symptom. It's a symptom of something, Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. else that's going on deeper. Um, And it's not, it doesn't mean that it's the whole person. It just means that there's some, something that hasn't been repaired or something that uh, over time has been learned by the person or even by one experience. I'm thinking about like people who are traumatized and how they have anxiety and how that's a symptom of something deeper, which I think, you know, safety is huge, right? Especially after a traumatic event. Um, makes sense. Wow, this is really awesome. And so I wanted to know a little bit more about what a typical day at work is like for you. I know that you're in private practice. You use... Um, you're probably on, you know, communicating with people in other countries and doing individual sessions. But what other kinds of things do you do throughout the day? Um, well, my private practice begins with my own silence practice. I really need to like, get my own sense of grounding before actually starting to work with someone. So that takes me, I would say, 25 minutes 30 minutes before I start with my first client. Um, usually we do it online and I, we work with over your actual problem. What is it right now? What are you feeling? What are you going through? That's like our meet, meet and greet session. And uh, from there, I usually take three or four clients like that, that we are just meeting and greeting, or we're coming after, this is the second part of it, because um, I meet and greet with a person, and then uh, after the symptoms that we went through, or what you're looking for through this practice, I craft a meditation, which is only for that person to work with, and I go back with them, and I present this meditation, and you're supposed to work with it at least for 10 days. And do your own process of 
internalizing and discovering what you're going through and then we meet again and we go through what you found and we do some then I, I think in that moment I become my old CBT uh, therapy because I there I start like trying to understand what's where that things are coming from and I present that to the client and say okay this might come from here this might come from here this behavior and then we go back again and we present another meditation the person goes into his practice and then we meet again and that is how I usually try to see uh, some progress in between when we started and when we decide that we are done working together so in that in that pathway that person which begins with me and then that person is ready to to walk by by herself again we tend to work a lot with journaling so that is something that I always come again and again with my clients like I need you to write all the things that we're working on and things you find and the things you're feeling because then when we meet we go through that process of uh, how your days have been and how you've been feeling, how, what things have come up. Because sometimes uh, when we're working so deeply with our emotions and some memories, we don't feel actually in that moment there is something changing. But then two or three days, something comes up. Mm. You say, where, where, where is this coming from? You know, why is this memory here? What am I crying because of this? And that is because we're just moving pieces of your inner subconscious mind and and there's some things that come up without expecting so um i that that is how i work i i take more or less i would say four or five clients per day and then i take some time myself to um write and do my crafting my meditations for any each of my clients and that takes my whole day basically um, I work around seven or eight hours, and um, that is that is my practice. I know it's very um, different from what we were trained for, but uh, I've managed to make it my own. Yeah, and I I think what's cool about having you on the podcast is to expose people, listeners, and even therapists who listen to different types of therapies um that maybe they didn't know existed i had no idea there was contemplative therapy and i didn't know how it worked and so i wonder um i actually think that this is going to be really helpful for people um that you know have kind of a limited understanding on what's out there because i remember even when i emailed you i was kind of like so what's the deal? Like, are you a therapist or like, what's your, like, tell me what your license is. But see, that's how the regular Western medicine world is kind of trained to think, right? Like how, like, what are your credentials or what's your NPI number and like all these yes, weird yes, things. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't like healing work or soul work or mind work. It's just, it looks different and sounds different. Um, and it seems to be very effective. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about, I have two specific questions. Um, okay. one is, uh, what advice do you have for uh, individuals who want to maybe follow a similar path as yours? And we'll start with that question first. 
that's a hard one because if I had to come all the way here again, I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> uh, and that's completely the, the truth. But, um, you know, for me, it all has come together every time I've tried to understand myself first. Um, what feels right in me, like in my body, in, in the way that I'm doing things, because uh, we tend to try to forget when our body is telling us something that we are not supposed to do. Like we, we try to not think that we're tense or we're rigid or are, are, we don't know why it doesn't something doesn't feel quite for you, but you push it because that is something that, I don't know, you said you would do 10 years ago or your parents are expecting you to do. So for me, it is very, um, everything's based on how authentic you are to yourself before making a decision. Um, I know this, this part of, of my practice is something that is not very common and I can work with that. I'm, I'm, I don't feel that I'm a cookie cutter person. Um, somehow I always felt that I was an outlier because I've been always asking for more and trying to search deeper. Um, and uh, for some reason, I'm not a Buddhist, but I do uh, understand very clearly the value in Buddhist psychology. And um, for example, last, last year I decided that not only I was going to understand and embody the Buddhist, Buddhist psychology, but I was going to immerse myself in, in silence, which is the practice of Buddhism. And um, I, I have a son. He's 11 years old now. And back then we were living in Miami. And I decided that I was going to India. And I went uh, to a silent immersion in India. And um, His Holiness Dalai Lama... Um, monastery and I went there I went off the grid I I just gave my phone away and um, I stayed there just trying to understand myself before coming out again and really working a little deeper into what I believed was, was the practice that I was doing so um I feel that before choosing a practice, we need to understand ourselves. And that is some part of responsibility because no one likes to be told what to do, you know? Um, and if we have uh, convinced, convinced ourselves that we know what's the best for us, then we have some power and some conviction to actually help another person find for themselves what's, what's good for them. So um, uh, that I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm really based into authenticity, and um, it doesn't matter to me how many times you have to erase what you thought your quote or your motto in life was. Just erase it and do it again until it feels that it represents who you are, and um, that is basically how I move through life and how I practice my. My purpose is just in any time something doesn't feel right, I stop and I try to go over my decisions and what are the options that are opening in front of me and what things I need to do to move forward. But whenever there is something that is not working for me, 
I just feel it, you know, you feel like there's something that's not moving properly. Mm -hmm. And that is how I got here because CBT for me was was somewhere as an organic move, you know, like I felt that was something that was in my line of work. But then there was something in there that I said, this is so structured and it has so many labels. And that is something that affected me personally because I was, you know, I was immersed in a society when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, in which we were all labeled because of your social status and you were who were your family, who, who your parents were. And I was just always running away from labels. So being in that practice made me feel that I was somehow suffocating and suffocating myself and suffocating others. And that is how I got here, just trying to always check with myself if, if what I was doing felt authentic to me. Yeah, I think that does answer the question. And I think it's appropriate that you answered it that way because um, I always ask everybody this question that I interview because um, I want to see, I guess, just generally, what advice would you give somebody um, or maybe your younger self, right? And mm-hmm. this this answer, I think, is probably one of the best ones because it's... I, I truly believe being a good therapist is has to do a lot with, are you in the right place? Um, do you feel genuine and authentic? Because if you don't, then you're not doing anybody a favor. Um, you're going to suffer and your clients won't come to full healing. That's what I believe. And so I think um, giving exact steps or advice could be you know, harmful to somebody's journey. Um, so it's just better to go off of like really knowing who you are, um, what fits with you and then just being authentic to that. So I think it's, I think that's really solid. Mm-hmm. That's a good answer. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Um, and, and with this, I'm not trying to like undermine like the regular clinical practice. I came, I think I came here only because I was, I was gonna, I could say raised or maybe um, properly guided by a brilliant clinical psychologist. And um, she brought me like into my own two feet. She put me into like, find your road, find your road. And she was the one that introduced me to meditation. So that had nothing to do with her clinical practice. She was just very good at trying to respect the boundaries between who she is and who I was in that moment and just allowing me to unfold every time I went to her sessions. So I truly believe that both practices are helpful, but you need to know to which area you belong, not because you you promised someone that you were going to become a clinical psychologist. That doesn't mean that you're not doing what you promised if you found another road to help and and heal people. Yep, exactly. I agree. The other question that I'd like to know about a little more is if you were to give therapists uh, or future therapists who are listening to this podcast um, some tips on starting their own contemplative practices, like personal ones, like kind of the one that you described for yourself in the morning before you start seeing clients, where could somebody start? Oh, 
That's a lovely, lovely question. Um, you know that uh, we've heard that mindfulness and breath work and meditation, we've heard like all those labels uh, for so long and we can easily put a tag into meditation and say it comes from Buddhism, comes from Hinduism and mindfulness comes from Jon Kabat-Zinn and breath work comes from yoga and those kind of things, you know, like we tend, again, as you said before, we tend to try to put things into a structure and label it. Uh, for me, my daily practice is just sitting with myself in silence, which I believe is all we need to hear our thoughts and hear our body and hear ourselves as individuals because uh, we are always entrapped in this, to this chain of thoughts, you know, like you can you if you were if you're talking to me right now and i say i don't know my computer has 90% battery then you that 90% just links to another thing and you say oh right 90% oh really i had 90 things to do before coming here and 90 comes to another thing and you start like jumping from one thought to the other and i could easily lose you in just one thing one word and um that is what our personality does. It's very good at keeping us entertained with our chain of thought. And uh, to me, just sitting with myself in silence, I can understand in that moment that my thoughts are like clouds. And this is the simplest practice. Um, you probably will see that because um, I just turned in an article about that. I'll, I will email it to you when it gets published. Uh, my silence practice is just sitting with myself, breathing for five or ten minutes very deeply, and then observing my thoughts and as if we're, we're just looking through a window and I could see my thoughts as, as clouds. So every time a thought comes like, I need to call Crystal, I put that thought as a cloud. And in between clouds, I see, I see an empty space. That empty space, that silence, is where I try to hold on very strongly because that is the place in which I feel we are in contact with our authentic self, like our inner world is right there, hiding behind the, the chain of thoughts that we are usually jumping from one to the other. So um, if you want to start a practice of self-discovery, and to me that is just simple as silence put your music off in the car try to drive without any music uh, try to cook without any music or any TV on try to eat your your meal without your phone without looking at a screen and feel yourself and see what you're going through right now and what is the thought this thought coming here what am I sad or what am I so angry or what am I so eager to keep eating what am I actually looking for? Um, that is to me the, the most sacred practice of it all, like sitting with yourself and grounding your being with, with that part of you which is behind your thoughts and behind the routines. That part of you will never change. That is who you truly are. And um, that's that to me is my practice. I don't, I don't have any... Um, I do offer guided meditations, but those kind of meditations always go back to sit with yourself in silence, 
you can uh, light on a candle if you need to to feel that you're doing a ritual which is very good for us humans we need to believe that we are in control of things so a ritual because we go step by step makes us feel in comfort so do a ritual sit with yourself light on a candle and sit there and find you who you are in the present moment uh, that that is that is all i do i don't know if that sounds complicated or sounds very simplistic but um no, I think it's good. I think those are good suggestions. I think that, one, it sounds like um, the main idea here is silence. And the main idea is sitting with your thoughts. And I like the way you described how thoughts are like clouds and like the space between the clouds. That's where you want to kind of stay. And so that'd be interesting. I'm going to have to try that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do. I want to hear back from you and say... Uh, let me know what, what you found. Yeah. I found that in that space, that is where like our most hidden emotions, our dreams, are that part of us that we usually try to like put away because we don't have time for that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, especially uh, us as mothers, like we tend to put like ourselves behind and try to take care of everything else before. And uh, in those moments, we find that part of us which has not been touched by obligations or standards or anything. There's a part of us that's there waiting, you know, waiting for us, for our, for our attention. So to me, that is just a recipe and that you can follow to discover why you're having anxiety or why you're eating too much or why you're not eating enough or why you're feeling that you're broken or you're not taking proper care of yourself is right there behind your thoughts there's a part of you which holds your belief system and that is where we are actually looking for transformation that is where transformation begins you know like uh, understanding why you feel that way or why you believe that comes from your past and only when you discover those true belief system that you're working all the time with, um, th that belief system creates thoughts and those thoughts create your reality. So if we go backwards, we know where we should be making some adjustments. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you. I wish, I mean, we could go on for probably hours talking about yes. this, right? But yeah, yeah. I, I'm wondering if you can let us know, let listeners know where people can contact you or read some of your work, um, whatever you feel like we need to know, um, how we can find you or your practice. Oh, that's great. Um, my uh, website is in the name of silence.co. Uh, you can find it in both English and Spanish. Uh, there I uh, explain, I think, clearly uh, what our practice is and how, how to work with me. Uh, also, I work, uh, I, po I post, try to post daily um, in my Instagram account because I'm not very into all the other social media platforms, so I just concentrate you know how much time that takes so I <laughs> whatever I can I put it on Instagram and my Instagram account is in the name of silence and um, you can find my meditations in the there are free 
on the Insight Timer app, which is uh, an app that's available in 200 countries in, around the world. And you just tap in there in the name of silence, and you're going to find my meditations and some other amazing meditations and amazing teachers as well. And um, I think that's basically it, you know? Like, um, that's a really creative name, in the name of silence. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a really good name. Thank you. Thank you. you. It came to me, I don't know, again, one of my meditations many, many years ago. Uh And um, it's been, it's been, it just stuck with me. So I think I just speak in the name of of how silence has been so grateful, uh, so great to me. And I'm grateful for that. And I just use my word and my practice to remind people that all we need sometimes is just put out out um, put off the noise and just gather our thoughts in silence so yeah very good thank you so much for coming on to the podcast thank you for having me and for having this uh weird practice which is not as common and as easy to interview someone like me as you would have it with someone that has a very um whatsoever standard practice it's it's i know it's easier to to navigate a clinical practice Uh, and mine is more organic and you did amazing trying to to tackle my all my ideas so thank you so very much for having me and for for making this happen one last really big thank you to Ms. Catalina talking to us about contemplative therapy. For more information about her practice, please visit www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. You'll find her contact information and her bio. Over the next few weeks, we have a couple of final episodes. Um, we will be continuing to explore different types of therapies. And I hope that you stick with us for the end of season two. Again, I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist.